Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Columbus and Jim Garrity. Hey, it's Friday. We all made it. We're glad you're with us on the Three Martini Lunch. And, Jim, we actually have a conventional format today, good, bad, and crazy martinis. So let's dive right into the good one. And we haven't heard a lot of Mike Pence, at least in public, when it comes to the whole Ukraine controversy. Uh, President Trump threw him under the bus at the U.N. a couple of weeks back by saying, hey, if you like my phone call to Zelensky, what do you see the phone calls Mike Pence had with Ukraine? But uh, Mike Pence was uh, talking with reporters, and while he later on said he didn't see anything wrong with uh, what Trump said about the Bidens and said that wasn't about uh, trying to uh, collude with uh, foreign powers to influence an election, uh, he also had this to say, which I think is a really good point, Jim. You will see that the president said to President Zelensky that our country had been through a lot, and then he had a question about foreign interference in our 2016 election. I mean... To be honest with you, when when did you all lose interest in foreign interference in the 2016 election? President Trump wants to get to the truth. He wants to know what happened in 2016. And the American people have a right to know. So Pence is referring to Trump's initial uh, request for the Ukraine to dig into whatever happened with CrowdStrike and the investigation of the uh, hacked DNC servers. And so, uh, Jim, we can obviously quibble about uh, whether Trump was appropriate in his questions about the Bidens. But his first question about CrowdStrike was totally legitimate. And nobody seems to care anymore now that the Mueller report's passed us. Yeah, it is a fair objection. Now, for what it's worth, I don't really think the the theory that the server ended up in Ukraine and all that stuff sounds kind of wacky. But if you suddenly say, oh, the president has no right to ask about this. Well, wait a second. I thought we did want to get to the bottom of all this. There was something uh, this way. There's no harm in asking. There's no harm in looking into this. And if there is no evidence there and if the server is not there and if everything that CrowdStrike was doing was on the up and up, fine. Great. No harm in looking. Um, Pence's observation that we spent a good portion of this presidency looking at uh, Russian disinformation operations and asking whether the Russians tried to hack the vote and all that kind of stuff. Um, the evidence about Russia is pretty clear about the Facebook ads. I think you, and we've talked about in the past, you know, you got to look far and wide to find somebody who said, well, I was going to vote for Hillary. But then I saw that uh, Russian Internet Research Agency generated Facebook ad that featured Hillary Clinton kickboxing with uh, Jesus, and then I decided to vote against her. You know, this stuff was kind of ham-handed and over-the-top and kind of ridiculous. And, of course, it was specifically designed to divide the country and marketed specifically to people who had self-identified on Facebook as, uh, as very conservative. So, again, the likelihood of this dissuading people from voting for Hillary does not seem terribly plausible. If we're going to ask about that, fine, ask about the Ukraine stuff. I, you know, um, the idea that all of a sudden it's become inappropriate to ask questions about foreign interference in 2016, you know, score one from Vice President Mike Pence. I think that's a very legitimate counter argument to make to these objections we're hearing about the president's call. Yes, absolutely. So let's investigate everything. And we also heard this week that John Durham, is it? I think that uh, Bill Barr appointed to look into everything is now expanding the probe which on the one hand is good if he's looking into more stuff and bad because it's now going to take longer to actually get to the end of this thing. So it's almost like there's a, a, a sprinter foot race here with the two runners looking at each other. One is the House Democrats on impeachment and one is the DOJ uh, <coughs> trying to figure out what the heck really happened in 2016. Yeah, I was going to say, you know what they're going to say, you know what the headline's going to be if Durham does come back with a whole bunch of information that is embarrassing to Democrats and other members of the media 
and folks who insisted that everything that launched the investigation in 2016 was on the up and up and there was no partisanship or shadiness on the part of John Brennan and, and Jim Comey and all the rest. You know what the headline's going to be, right, Greg? <laughs> Trump's handpicked attorney general or something like that? No, no, no. Bull Durham. <laughs> or Durham Bulls or something. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> Is there a Luke Nanu- Nuke Lelouch uh, reference going to happen here, too? <laughs> All right, let's talk about our bad martini, and congratulations to the NBA. It's not often that uh, a story makes it into the three martinis every day for an entire week uh, consecutively, but uh, hey, hats off to Steve Kerr, because you're two out of the five here, buddy. A couple days ago, he was talking about needing to talk to his Chinese history professor brother-in-law to really get to the bottom of torturing people and harvesting their organs while they're still alive when it comes to the Uyghurs, uh, clamping down on Christians, uh, 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 crushing the protests in Hong Kong with increasing force. Really complicated stuff. But uh, Steve Kerr is now talking about it, which is amazing because the NBA has now issued a media blackout for the entire time these teams are in China. But uh, Steve Kerr decided to talk, and let's just say, Jim, he didn't help himself. This lasts about a minute, but I assure you the pain will end. Um, it has not come up in terms of people asking me about it, uh, people discussing it, um, nor has uh, our record of, of human rights abuses come up either. You know, um, things that our country needs to look at and resolve, um, that hasn't come up either. So none of us are perfect, and we all have uh, different issues that we have to get to. And saying that is my right as an American, doesn't mean that I hate my country. It means I want to address things, right? But people in China didn't ask me about, uh, you know, people owning AR-15s and mowing each other down in a mall. I wasn't asked that question. So we can play this game all we want and go all over the map and, you know, there's this issue and that issue. And um, the world is a complex place and there's more gray than black and white. Jim? Are we really going to pretend here that a government rounding up people, starving them, killing them, repressing them is the same as a crazy person killing people in a mall? I mean, they're both bad, but the fact that we're equating the two governments here, is that really where we're going? Well, what I don't quite get, Greg, is this idea that uh, the, the you know, what it was basically a slow motion genocide of the Uyghurs in Western China, uh, one to two million people in, in concentration camps. That's an issue that's complicated and gray, and that Kerr just—he just doesn't want to get into it. He just—he's—he's you know, he's afraid he's going to say something that's not going to turn out right. He just doesn't feel well informed, or that he's in a position to judge. But owning an AR-15, that's real simple, huh? That's something where there's no gray area. That's one that's not complicated. No, no, no. In that one, we can just you know wail away and you know not have to worry about rubbing someone the wrong way or something like that. I think, I think it's very revealing. Now. Greg, it's worth noting, you know, later today on NRO, I really started thinking about this argument because you and I had talked about the the uh, NFL players kneeling and, and all the various controversies that have been in the sports world for a long time. And while I don't know if you and I were ever explicitly stick to sports, uh, I did write a piece in which I said, look, I just want to watch the game. I think we got a little tired of, of this, you know, when Bob Costas would interrupt the halftime show to let us know how important gun control was or uh, how he found the name Redskins offensive or all the different, you know, I did find that exasperating. I did object to it. And I did say, hey, guys, you're alienating a chunk of your uh, of your audience. And people say, well, now you want NBA players to speak out. Aren't you a hypocrite? Okay. Well, you know, maybe I can, maybe you can make that. That's a fit. I'll, I'll take that hit. 
you could probably make an argument that folks like myself who objected to the standing dur- to kneeling during the national anthem failed to give create give appropriate recognition to the fact that the players were you know taking a stance in what their minds was a principled stance and that they were willing to take their lumps over it you know obviously i think you could say for most of them other than kaepernick the you know consequences to their career are pretty minimal uh nobody got cut nobody got uh suspended uh fined um you know were there some fans that the ratings go down for a little bit sure did some you know tickets get unused or unsold probably sure but by and large, the league has bounced back. And Kaepernick, for a guy who you know ended his playing days effectively, um, is still in a position where he's got enough power to tell Nike what kind of shoes they can make. Uh, so you could argue about whether that really turned out to be such a bad deal for him in the first place. But nonetheless, okay, these guys are taking a principled stand, and they chose to do it. And they said, hey, you know what? We know this might offend people. We know this might bother people. We know we might alienate people who usually show up on Sundays and cheer for us. But we think it's worth it. We think it's just that important. Yeah, maybe I did, didn't uh, look at things that way. That doesn't change anything about what's going on in China. <laughs> and the thing is, if it's hypocritical for people like you to say, hey, NBA, you should speak out about this, when they previously didn't want professional athletes to speak out about important issues, then what's the, the, the flip side is that Steve Kerr is really hypocritical to say, oh, I've got nothing to say about con- concentration camps. That's, you know, this is the moment I'm going to choose to be quiet and have nothing to say. Or just even standing up for... The, the general manager's right to say it. At least Adam Silver did that. Talk about how China represses speech. I mean, you want to see the difference, Steve Kerr, between China and the United States? If you said that about the Chinese government, you'd have some consequences for that. You wouldn't just be allowed to go on your merry way and keep coaching the Golden State Warriors. But apparently yeah. he doesn't understand that. And I've got a little bit of sympathy for Steve Kerr. I mean, his father was a diplomat who was shot to death in Lebanon. So I know the, the gun issue uh, is very, very personal to him. And, and I get that. And so I don't... I don't uh, have a problem understanding where he's coming from on the gun issue. I strongly disagree with him on it. But uh, the fact that he's now going silence and, and the moral equivalence between the United States and China is is the uh, the most nauseating part of this week, perhaps. And it makes it really, really hard for me, Jim, to remember the most pristine Steve Kerr moment for me. I referenced it the other day, but tie game, game six, 1997 NBA Finals. Jordan gets double teamed. Michael, six seconds. In traffic to Kerr, 15 footers. Yeah! Kerr buried the jumper. Uh, I just wish we could stay there, Jim. But sadly, we can't. <laughs> it was all downhill from there for Steve Kerr. <laughs> Well, he's won three world championships as a coach and won five as a player. So he's had a pretty good run in the NBA. But uh, on the political side, he's uh, got some learning to do. And fortunately for him, he won't have to do it in a re-education camp, as he would in China. All right, let's move on to our crazy martini now, Jim. And October 15th is next week, I believe. I think that's a Tuesday. And it's also the next Democratic presidential debate with 12 people on stage. So, you know, we're really going to get into a lot of Thorough, detailed discussions, of course, over the course of those two or for really unlucky three hours. I'm not even sure who's hosting this one. But uh, as, as we mentioned the past couple of weeks, we've got the 10 who qualified for the September debate, plus two who have recently qualified again, Tom Steyer and Tulsi Gabbard. So Tulsi Gabbard is immediately following up her inclusion in this debate with the threat to boycott the debate. So she released this statement via social media yesterday. Three different clips here from this statement, which in total ran about uh, two minutes. First, there's this. I need to share something with you that's very important. 
There are so many of you who I've had the opportunity to meet in Iowa and New Hampshire who've expressed to me how frustrated you are that the DNC and the corporate media are essentially trying to usurp your role as voters in choosing who our Democratic nominee will be. We'll get to the other two bites in a minute here, Jim, but either Iowa is so cravenly political or Tulsi Gabbard is not telling us the truth here, because I'm pretty sure most people don't come up to a candidate and say, you know what my biggest issue is, is that the (laughs) corporate media and the DNC are rigging this so people like me don't have a vote. But anyway, Tulsi Gabbard not done talking about rigging. Now, the 2016 Democratic primary election was rigged by the DNC and their partners in the corporate media against Bernie Sanders. In this 2020 election, the DNC and the corporate media are rigging the election again, but this time it's against the American people in the early voting states of Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, and Nevada. So Tulsi Gabbard has decided that she's going to leave us twisting in the wind here for a few days about whether she'll actually show up for this thing. And they're holding so-called debates, which really are not debates at all, but rather commercialized reality television meant to entertain rather than to inform or enlighten. So in short, the DNC and the corporate media are trying to hijack the entire election process. So in order to bring attention to this serious threat to our democracy and to ensure that your voice is heard, I'm seriously considering boycotting the next debate on October 15th. She says she'll make her decision in the next few days and then literally immediately transitions into wishing everyone the warmest possible aloha, which is not exactly the theme of this message. So, Jim, I assume she's going to show up and kneecap the DNC, perhaps, instead of a particular candidate here. But uh, you, over the past uh, 24 hours, have been examining this and wondering why she has such a problem with the DNC standards here. Yeah. Um, and, you know, look, you know, you've gone really out there when I'm griping about somebody bashing the DNC. <laughs> I'm not usually the person who's first to run to their aid, but the first point is that I find this a pretty implausible threat. That, that if, and in fact, if she really does say, you know what, I qualified for this debate, I had the level of support I needed in the polls, I uh, had the requisite number of donors, I'm staying home. That's how dissatisfied I am with how the DNC and the television networks are running these debates. Yeah, I'll take my hat off to her. That's that, okay. That's that, that'd be pretty gutsy. I think it'd also be kind of self-destructive. You're you're, give, you're missing out on an opportunity to reach a fairly sizable audience. She did not qualify for the third debate, um, and so I think the odds of her making debates five, six, seven, and beyond are are not uh, are not that great. But in the end, like her complaints um, about them, they're they're you know corporate funded. Well, television networks are the ones that bring the signals. <laughs> to everybody's audience like what do you want us to do all done by by paper airplane or something how do you want this how do you want this debate to be televised and her other complaint is that somehow they're unfairly excluding certain candidates again as i've pointed out throughout this entire process you got to have a threshold somewhere i believe at peak we had 26 democratic candidates i know it was definitely up to 24 um and then the other one is that you know uh, uh, there are still 19 right so if we if, i guess if they decided to have that we're going to have every candidate invited and we're going to do one night, 10 candidates, the next night, nine candidates, and everybody gets their chance to be on stage. Then, yes, America would no longer be denied the opportunity to find out what Wayne Messam thinks uh, of all of this stuff. Uh, and, you know, because there's 19, there's room for Irving Schmidt left, too, who has not showed up in most of the official counts. Look, I'm sorry. We, we did see Tim Ryan up on that stage and we were pretty unimpressed, you know. You and I have talked about this, Greg. You know, what I like to see, actually, I, I interviewed Joe Sestak, and I think he's a pretty good guy. I, I don't agree with him on a whole bunch of stuff, but, you know, fine. 
Now, Joe Sestak, people who don't remember, one, he's a human being. Um, he's running for president. He is a former member of the House from uh, the state of Pennsylvania. Ran against Arlen Specter way back in 2010 when Specter flipped sides and decided to be a Democrat. Sestak said, you got to be kidding me. This guy was a Republican up until about 10 minutes ago. I want to run. Ran as a Democrat, won the nomination, uh, and then lost to Pat Toomey in 2010. And as far as I'm concerned, don't tell Sestak this, but that was a very significant upgrade. But, you know, Sestak is this old school kind of Democrat. He's basically seems to be campaigning by literally walking from one end of these primary states to the other. He's not you don't see him on big TV ads or anything like that. You don't see him on TV very much. I'd like to see him up on that stage, but they're not because the DNC and the networks have to have a threshold somewhere. First threshold was one percent. Then it was two percent. Now they're bumping it up to three. This is not cruel or mean or unfair or something. And if Stolze Gabbard, it also sounds like she feels like these are all just exchanges of sound bites. Well, one of the reasons these debates are just exchanges of sound bites is because there's very strict term limits. It was a minute and 15 at the last debate. Why was there a strict time limit? Because there's so many candidates on stage. <laughs> Something's got to give here. You can either have fewer candidates on stage or you can have longer answers. But if you put both of them, you end up with the debates going more than three hours. Each one of the two night debates already ended up to be in the neighborhood of like five hours each. You know, I realize there are a lot of listeners out there who are like, well, I don't care. I don't pay attention. That's what Jim's for. <laughs> um, and this is you know, a little bit of my own personal whining. But I honestly, I think most viewers at home tune out after a certain moment. I don't think the country or the party or anybody else is particularly well served by debates that stretch out towards the three hour period. Which means, you know, Congresswoman Gabbard, I'm sorry, something's got to give. And I think the DNC is pretty perfectly fine to do this. Um, your problem and the problem for a lot of these other candidates is that our systems aren't really well designed to handle 20 or so candidates. It was considered a big deal back in, um, uh, I believe it was 1988, when eight Democrats decided to run against uh, uh, Reagan's term was ending. George H.W. Bush ended up winning the Republican nomination. It was uh, Patricia Richardson, I want to say, of Colorado. Uh, Schroeder, and, Schroeder. This is Schroeder, pardon me. Patricia Schroeder and uh, the Seven Dwarfs. Uh, Gephardt and Gary Hart and, and all those guys. And eventually, you know, Dukakis won the nomination. That, you know, eight was considered a lot back then. Well, you know, the next night we're going to have 11 and that's going to have, you know, uh, eight of these folks off stage. I'm sorry, Congresswoman. The DNC has got to have some standards. I don't think they're being particularly unfair. And most of us are very skeptical that you're going to turn down a chance to appear on national television like this. Patricia Richardson was the mom on home improvement, and Tim, Al- Tim right. Allen's you know, a Republican, so she might probably be a better option than Patsy Schroeder. But uh... I would easily elect Patricia Richardson. <laughs> what is? You could the... keep those three boys in line, and Tim blowing up the kitchen all the time. She'd be just fine. <laughs> what? Uh, what's Tulsi Gabbard's end game here? I mean, she's basically out there saying, "Hey, I want to be the nominee of the party that's totally corrupt." Where's she going with this? She's not going to be yeah. the nominee. So what next? Well, the first thing is that if you were um, the, the, you know, the surfing congresswoman uh, elected a few cycles ago, and, and at one point, you know, probably one of our favorite members of uh, Democratic members of Congress. Yeah. Um, she used to be very tough on the Obama administration in the Middle East, very tough on the Obama administration in the VA scandal. You know, she looked at she was on the uh, board of directors for this uh, uh, Bernie Sanders think tank up in Vermont. She probably looked at it and said, "Okay, I can do a lot of the Bernie stuff. And Bernie, you know, exploded in 2016. Nobody thought he was going to go anywhere. And I could, you know, she she could run against the DNC. And I think there is a good significant amount of dissatisfaction in Democratic circles, the way the National Committee, certainly the way they managed to put their thumb on the scale in the 2016 campaign and just a general sense of, ah, 
who are the idiots we have running this party? Uh, a general dissatisfaction there. The problem, and you're right, you know, so where does she go from here? What do you do? You know, how much, how long can you run against the party structure and then expect to be put in charge of the thing? So who is the one person she really hasn't taken a good hard shot at uh, in this primary so far, Greg? Uh, Warren? No, no. She said she didn't think she had the right kind of experience to be commander in chief. Joe? She hasn't gone after Joe Biden. And in fact, she kind of has said that, you know, uh, Kamala Harris tried to create a, a scandal where there wasn't one on the busing stuff, in addition to her other criticisms of uh, Kamala Harris. And at one point when, you know, people were giving Biden grief about the Iraq stuff, she came out and said, look, he apologized for it. And I think that's appropriate. And I think we'd like to see that kind of thoughtful reconsideration from all of our leaders. So I kind of wonder in the back of my mind if Tulsi Gabbard sees herself as a potential running mate for the <clears throat> seasoned uh, current <laughs> front runner. And look, I mean, if you're if you're the only gig in, in politics that's probably sweeter than being Joe Biden's uh, vice president would be being Bernie Sanders <laughs> vice president. Oh, for every day you go to the Oval Office and saying, so how you feeling? Yeah. Well, I don't know about running mate, but somewhere in that administration, if he were to actually become president, I think you're right, because don't forget, I mean, she was basically the equivalent of a of a third wrestler flying down the ramp with a folding chair uh, <laughs> against Kamala Harris, who was uh, obviously uh, had Biden on the ropes there for a minute. So, yeah, I think you might have something to it. I don't know if you put her that it's high. It's very unusual she hasn't gone after Biden. No, look, maybe she does. Maybe she does show up next week and she does go after Biden and this theory gets blown to hell. But there's a couple <laughs> interesting cases where she has held her fire. Um, that's been kind of interesting. And she's taken off. Be, I guess the big question, does she go after Warren? Um, and again, you know, I just it's just easy to imagine a scenario where she, you know, Biden pulls it off. The country's in a bad mood about Trump. Tulsi Gabbard is the running mate. Biden Gabbard wins. And then on like January 22nd, 2021, she just hides behind the door of the Oval Office and jumps out and yells, boo, <laughs> and just just to see what happens. Oh, you're terrible. But <laughs> uh, when when your boss is 70, what's he going to be, 78 if he were to be sworn in? Uh, it's, it's not an unreasonable thing to consider. And uh, she might just be uh, waiting in the wings if he collapses too. Not not literally, but politically. <laughs> but politically because, you know, he's more uh, middle of the road on a lot of things. And that's, relatively speaking, just how far left most people are in this primary but uh, depending on the issue, that's kind of where she is. And I can see her trying to be there to pick up the pieces. Kind of like Ted Cruz was there with Trump, only it never happened. <laughs> yeah, look, again, I try not to make too many jokes about these people keeling over. But um, everybody running, every, every important person in our politics right now, Greg, is at least 70 years old. <laughs> Warren is the young one at 70. I guess that's a testament to uh, the fact that we're uh, living more healthy, thriving lives later in life? Or is it just that we just don't have a bench anywhere? I was going to say, look, we, we, you chased Paul Ryan out of politics, America. You know, Generation X was rising. They had something to say, but no, no. All right. Anyway, Jim, uh, good luck to the Jets against the Cowboys this weekend. The Bears have the the week off. So uh, hope things go well. I know you got your quarterback and his uh, normal-sized spleen back again. So hope it goes well. I, I was about to say, there's a lot of things we need to worry about. The offensive line's been troubled. The running game's been spotty at best. Our receivers keep dropping passes, which is none of this helps a rookie quarterback. And, you know, um, immune systems. And we got to worry about our defense and our defense against other infections. 
Galati's on the mend. Jim, hope you're in a good mood after the game. And uh, again, Monday. Actually, no, I won't see you Monday, but I will see you Tuesday. So uh, enjoy your time till then. Hope you have a fabulous Columbus Day. See you Tuesday, Greg. He's Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thank you for being with us today. Please subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. Also, leave us a nice, kind review if you're so inclined. Have a great weekend, and we will see you Monday. Yes, there will actually be an edition on Columbus Day of the Three Martini Lunch.